Hello everyone and welcome to this lesson five in our course on immigration and the Nordic welfare state. In this lesson we'll talk about um, political discourse and belonging, um, specifically how political discourse affects belonging and the acculturation strategies of immigrants. Um, but before we begin I'll just uh, briefly remind you of uh, the lesson structure so you have this uh, recorded lecture before class that I upload to Moodle with a slight delay this time. And then during class, we'll start out um, in the first half by you doing a group exercise in your private group channels. And then we'll use the second half of the class to first discuss the group exercise together in the general channel uh, and have an open discussion of any questions uh, you might have. So that is um, uh, the general structure that we used for our last lesson and that we will also use for this lesson and likely also all the future lessons. So the agenda for uh, today's talk, you can see here. So firstly, we uh, will discuss why it is that uh, political discourse matters for the uh, integration of immigrants uh, and descendants. Then we'll talk about the differences in the Scandinavian immigration politics, something that we have already touched upon um, in the previous lessons. Um, and then we'll talk about the effect that uh, the political discourse has have on the political belonging of immigrants on their acculturation strategies, and lastly, on their national belonging, their feelings of national belonging. So if you remember the last time uh, we talked about the political climate uh, in a country and how that might affect participation and belonging. Specifically, we talked about it in the context of uh, the text by Kroll and Schneider um, and their comparative integration context theory. And they stressed that uh, the political climate uh, matters for the participation and belonging uh, of immigrants and their children. Now the political climate, you can say, consists of at least two things, uh, political discourse and the policies and institutions of a country or city or municipality, whatever context it is we're talking about. So um, today we'll talk about political discourse as a specific part of the political climate that uh, might affect the feelings of belonging and how immigrants participate in society. Notice also that uh, the texts that I co-authored, uh, text Jensen, by uh, co-authored together with Christian Fernandez and Greta Brockman, which is on the syllabus, also points towards uh, our next lesson, lesson six. It introduces uh, differences in citizenship policies uh, and try to explain them by the different notions of nationhood and social cohesion that dominates uh, the political um, climate in Denmark, Sweden and Norway. So it's included here to give you a sense uh, of, of the boundaries that are being drawn in the political discourse in the three countries, but it also introduces you to the different citizenship 
policies of the three countries that we will discuss in lesson six. Finally, um, if you're um, watching this lecture with the slides, if you're watching the video that includes the slides, I've attempted to use as few uh, slides as possible uh, and mostly bullet points. So because I really want to encourage you to make your own notes, it's a much more effective way of learning. So at least I've tried to include as few slides as possible um, and as little text as possible. Let's see, but still something that I'm practicing, I guess. So there is still some text on the slides at least, but I will also uh, upload the slides to Moodle so you can find them there. But let's uh, turn our attention, attention to uh, the first point uh, on the agenda. Why political discourse or rhetoric, the, the two terms are used interchangeably. So why political discourse or rhetoric matters. I already uh, talked a bit about um, the comparative integration context theory and how uh, that theory emphasizes uh, the importance of context. And the way we discuss matters of immigration and integration and social cohesion and nationhood um, are important, important parts of the context. Of course, in some contexts, uh, it might um, be very salient discussions that people are having a lot and often. And in other contexts, there might be discussions that uh, don't take up that much time in public debates. Uh, and you have publics and politicians who are mostly interested in other issues. So that, of course, is one way it could vary between contexts, uh, what it really is that is being discussed in politics and the extent to which uh, politicians and publics are even interested in discussing matters of uh, immigration and connected concepts. But to the extent that they uh, discuss these matters, to the extent that they discuss immigrant integration, the way it is discussed signals something to immigrants. Uh, it signals um, the notions that politicians or commentators or publics have in terms of what it means to belong to this particular national or political community. Uh, so what is a valued member? What does it mean to be a good citizen in this particular community? These kind of notions we can't really get around if we want to discuss how we achieve a society that is cohesive and well-functioning and a society where immigrants are integrated into. In order to discuss these matters, we ha also have to discuss what it means to be a member of this society, uh, what it is this society values and uh, finds important. And of course, um, so these discussions, public discussions, they will touch upon what are the defining features of the nation and what it, what constitutes a good citizen. And in some contexts, uh, in some communities, there are certain 
more ethnocultural conceptions of community that dominate. Conceptions that involve uh, the notion that in order to have to be a a good citizen, a valued member of society, that you have to adapt culturally to the dominant cultural norms of that community. You have to assimilate culturally. So because that is what and being an insider, a member of the community is defined as is defined as a person who has uh, a certain culture and value uh, certain cultural norms. Um, and practices. And so in some contexts, you might have this, these kind of conceptions of community. Uh, in other con uh, contexts, you ha might have other concepts of community that do not emphasize cultural sameness, um, but other things. And we'll come into that in our discussion of the differences between Denmark, Sweden and Norway. But if you have these um, more hostile contexts or contexts that are more skeptical towards immigration and the cultural diversity it brings, because it somehow uh, threatens um, social, cohesion, uh, social cohesion, because to there, uh, because it is a widespread belief that social cohesion builds on cultural sameness. If you have these dominant conceptions in a society and you have immigration being very much politicized, very much talked about, you will have a high degree of anti-immigrant rhetoric in society, a kind of rhetoric that will, uh, to a certain extent, question the intentions and values uh, of minorities, or at least minorities will feel that their intentions and values are being questioned by um, large parts of society, that they're skeptical towards them uh, in terms of whether they can be a part of the national community and if they really want to be a part of the national community, if they really want to uh, leave behind some of their cultural baggage, shed some of their old culture and learn a new culture. And it's these differences and context differences and how immigrants are talked about that likely affects um, the kind of belonging that they develop to uh, the community uh, and how they want to participate uh, in society. If you remember from uh, the last lesson, we also talked a bit about uh, uh, Richard Alba's concept of blight, bright versus blurred boundaries. So that also uh, are concepts that are relevant to use here. So if you have this very ethnocultural conception of community, um, you have very bright uh, boundaries in the sense that you have a very clear demarcation of what it means to be an insider to the national community and who are on the outside. And that this bright boundary is very much defined in terms of culture. Uh, behaving in a certain way and uh, subscribing to certain cultural norms and values. Compare that to another context where we have more blurred boundaries, we have a discussion about nationhood and social cohesion that does not um, argue that, that in order to be part of the national community, you have to 
subscribe and adapt to a certain set, uh, fixed set of norms and values, but that there might be many different ways that you can can be part of the national community and that the national community can incorporate many different norms and cultural practices and values. So in this context, there are much more blurred boundaries between in terms of what it means to be an insider and or an outsider to the national community. And if you have very blurred boundaries in this sense, uh, it might make it easier to develop national belonging um, and belong to the political community and feel valued as a member of uh, the community. So in the uh, the text by um, uh, Simonsen from 2019, she talks about some possible mediators of uh, a negative effect of anti-immigrant rhetoric. So the idea here is that um, it's, as I just uh, did, uh, hypothesize that there is uh, a negative effect of anti-immigrant rhetoric. So in the sense that it makes it more difficult for uh, immigrants to develop a strong sense of belonging to society. But she argues, or that at least she hypothesizes in her text, that, there might, um, that this effect might be mediated by different factors. And she talks about education and generation, exposure and the rhetorical content as possible mediators uh, of the effect of anti-immigrant rhetoric. So in terms of uh, education and generation, uh, she talks about classic assimilation theory, which expects that as immigrants become more integrated uh, socioeconomically, uh, and structurally, the political climate or the or the political discourse and rhetoric will matter less to them. It will affect them uh, less uh, because they will conform more to the host society norms and behaviors and uh, will develop uh, a large uh, uh, degree of attachment to society. So it's kind of this kind of straight line uh, assimilation theory that as the as immigrants become more integrated in terms of uh, job market and the education, um, they will um, feel less um, targeted by uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric. So as they become more educated, as they are born in the country as a second generation immigrant compared to a first generation immigrant and live out their whole life, or their childhood and adolescence in the country, uh, that in itself will make them more immune towards anti-immigrant rhetoric. So that's the kind of a classic assimilation theory. However, um, some have proposed uh, that there actually is what they term an integration paradox. So the integration paradox states that as um, immigrants become more educated, more socioeconomically integrated, that they will actually become um, more, they, be, they will develop stronger expectations of equal treatment and they will become more aware of being treated unfairly. Um, 
So they will react stronger to what they perceive as anti-immigrant rhetoric and they react stronger to perceived discrimination and prejudice in society because they have developed strong expectations that they will be treated equally because they have attained um, the same level of integration as, let's say, every other uh, person or native in society. A second kind of mediator is uh, exposure. So the idea is that um, in order for anti-immigrant rhetoric to have a negative effect, um, immigrants must be exposed to it. And those immigrants who are more interested in politics and have a larger or more media consumption, so they follow politics more, are also the ones who are exposed more uh, to the anti-immigrant rhetoric and also those who will experience um, a stronger negative effect of it. You also have contexts where uh, pol immigrant issues are more politicized in other contexts where it's more talked about. Uh, and in those contexts, it is also more likely that immigrants are exposed to um, anti-immigrant rhetoric. Then finally, there is the content of the rhetoric, which might also um, mediate the effects, the negative effect of anti-immigrant rhetoric. So firstly, certain groups uh, are targeted. Um, for example, uh, Muslims, and if it's certain groups who are targeted uh, in the rhetoric, um, it means that, um, that those are the groups that are most likely to be negatively affected. So groups who uh, do not feel targeted by anti-immigrant rhetoric, so immigrant groups who do not feel targeted are less likely to also uh, be affected by the rhetoric in terms of their belonging and participation. And then lastly, um, you can have boundary drawing differences. Of course, you have anti-immigrant rhetoric. Uh, the boundary drawing is mostly um, bright, uh, using Alba's terms. Um, but of course, this could be a, a dimension um, that you can kind of um, be positioned on. So it can be more or less bright and more or less blurred. Uh, and the anti-immigrant rhetoric can perhaps um, have less to do with values and norms, and it could be have more to do with um, other issues of integration, such as perhaps, perhaps crime uh, and employment. So, um, if it's if if the concern is less about the norms or cultural practices of immigrants, um, it's a different kind of boundary drawing that is being made, even though there is anti-immigrant rhetoric. Uh, it's just not connected to cultural norms and practices, but perhaps connected to um, immigrants being a threat to others on the job market uh, or increasing crime rates in society. So that might also uh, mean something. How the answer immigrant rhetoric, uh, the content of it exactly. So these were uh, some um, some possible mediators of a negative effect of anti-immigrant rhetoric. But the basic idea is still that if you have a society with a large degree of anti-immigrant rhetoric, it will have a negative effect on immigrants. But, no, but it might 
the effect might differ in terms of the kind of immigrant you are. So let's turn a bit towards um, the political discourse about uh, immigrant integration in Scandinavia, in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, which of course are the cases, uh, the most, the cases that this course is uh, built around. So generally, um, in Western Europe, there has been what some have termed a civic turn. Uh, in immigrant integration politics since the late 90s. So this has uh, been, a, in, in terms of policies, it's been a turn towards implementing uh, so-called civic integration policies, that is policies that condition the access to citizenship and permanent residence uh, on meeting certain requirements regarding language, employment, knowledge, uh, and loyalty. So this has been a general uh, development in the Western Europe and most countries have in some form or other implemented the so-called civic integration policies. For some, this development reflects kind of a move away from nationalism uh, towards kind of a common approach defined by liberal values and emphasis uh, on employment. Christian Jopke is a prominent scholar uh, who have this analysis. So the idea here is that uh, immigrant integration is has become less about nationalism um, and national national identity and social cohesion in terms of national identity, uh, having a strong shared national identity in society, uh, and become more about getting immigrants to accept certain liberal values that are universal and shared across uh, country borders and getting them employed so they are not uh, a drain on the economy. But, uh, but that analysis is, uh, is quite contested. Um, and many argue that there are large differences within this civic turn uh, and the civic turn is more about policies. Uh, it's also about a general turn where nation states start to kind of more intense, intensely and openly question uh, how they maintain a, a national citizenry, a population that is conducive to a well-functioning liberal democracy uh, and welfare state. And an important part of these discussions uh, is nationhood and national identity and how that relates to having cohesive and well-functioning societies. So um, when we look at the three countries, Denmark, Sweden and Norway, they present uh, a puzzle. And that's also often why they're very interesting to compare. So they have taken very different uh, routes in terms of their citizenship policy. Denmark having some of the most restrictive in, uh, in the Western Europe, Sweden some of the most liberal, and Norway in between. So we've already all uh, touched upon this uh, in previous lessons and we'll talk more about it in, in lesson six. So this presents a puzzle because the three countries are so similar uh, 
in terms of their welfare states and also to a certain extent in terms of uh, cultural norms and the behavior of the three countries. So, for example, all three countries have a history of being very progressive on uh, on values related to gender equality and sexual freedom um, and lifestyle in general. So they have they share this kind of uh, progressiveness in terms of in terms of lifestyle, sexuality, uh, and gender. So it's not just that they have very similar welfare state institutions, they are also culturally similar to, uh, to a certain extent. But one uh, answer that has been proposed in order to understand why they, have, they differ so much in terms of citizenship policy is actually the notions of nationhood and social cohesion that dominate um, the three societies. And this is the text uh, that I co-written on the syllabus today, where you can kind of find this, uh, this analysis. So uh, in that text, we argue that Danish politics is dominated by a, no um, a notion that social cohesion and a strong sense of a national community uh, develops through a bottom-up process. And by that, we mean a process of extensive socialization where the foundation is that people grow up uh, in the same society, in the same institutions, they go to similar schools uh, and they go to workplaces that are uh, kind of influenced and dominated by the national culture. So they, they grow up in the same uh, institutional and cultural framework and by this kind of extensive socialization where from childhood through adolescence into adulthood, you, uh, you, your life moves within this institutional cultural framework. Through that process, uh, you develop a strong sense of national community uh, and strong sense of social cohesion in society. And it's also a process that creates a certain extent, uh, extent uh, cultural homogeneity, or at least that's the argument, that when we grow up within these same institutions, we receive similar education, we are taught uh, similar things. Uh, we are also uh, molded to a certain extent towards being culturally similar. And this cultural sameness is what uh, drives a strong sense of national community, a strong sense of trust in each other and solidarity towards each other. In Sweden, this perception is not uh, the dominant uh, notion about how you, you create a well-functioning and just society and in terms of uh, creating a strong, a strong integration. In Sweden, it is uh, the notion is more that it's a top-down process that you create a well-functioning uh, society where people uh, trust their institutions and, and and have solidarity towards each other. You create that by creating equal opportunities in society. You include people. You give them equal rights. You make sure that they have equal opportunities in terms of succeeding in society and creating a good life for themselves. And by doing that, 
you make them see that this the institutions work, they're fair, it's well functioning, uh, and it makes them like society. It makes them develop a strong sense of identification with society, and it creates a willingness for them to uh, sacrifice themselves in a certain sense for society. And by that, I mean uh, pay high taxes. So that is a very different idea about what creates a cohesive society, uh, an idea that does not put emphasis on culture much, but not, does not put, put a strong emphasis on national identity or nationhood, um, as we see in Denmark. And in that way, the, 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 the boundaries of what it means to belong to the Swedish community and be a valued member uh, and be a part of the national Swedish community is much more blurred uh, compared to the Danish context where it's much more bright uh, because it's being an insider in, in the Danish uh, national community is much more defined and understood in terms of uh, culture and a specific sense culture uh, of culture, a specific kind of culture. And then in the middle, you have uh, Norway, somewhere in the middle, kind of leaning both towards Denmark and Sweden in the debate, having both perspectives present uh, in their public debates. In the text by Simonsen, she, uh, she uses party manifesto data to show how um, and measure uh, the negative uh, rhetoric by political parties uh, on uh, immigration specifically multiculturalism as is defined in the party manifesto data uh, and as you can see from the figure one in her text um, negative statements about cultural diversity and multiculturalism are much more uh, prevalent in party manifestos in Denmark compared to party manifestos in Norway or Sweden in fact Denmark is the country in Europe, at least the, uh, among the countries included in this data set, where you find the most negative statements about multiculturalism and cultural diversity. And Sweden are among the countries where you find the fewest. So this is again just to demonstrate um, the differences between three countries in terms of their uh, the, the anti-immigrant rhetoric uh, in public debates. And of course, it's also because it's a much more politicized issue in Denmark than it has been in Norway or Sweden. So it's just been a much more important issue for voters and for political parties to position themselves on in order to compete for government power. And it's not been a politicized issue to any extent in Sweden and Norway as we've seen it in Denmark. So uh, let's turn to uh, talk a bit about the effect on political belonging that, um, that this anti-immigrant rhetoric has or that political discourse have. Um, so this is uh, based, uh, these findings here, uh, what we'll discuss here is based on a text by Simonsen in the syllabus, uh, but I'll also present a few results uh, of my own that are unpublished, but that uh, are also interesting uh, in terms of the effect of political discourse on political belonging. And by political belonging here, um, Simonsen 
specifically means the trust we feel in politicians and the satisfaction we feel with democracy in our societies. So if we feel a strong sense of political trust and we are very satisfied with our democracy, uh, that is what she would term having a strong sense of political belonging. So um, most studies uh, don't look uh, at political rhetoric when they uh, try to, uh, to see how the, the national context affects political belonging. Instead, they tend to look at differences in institutions and policies. Uh, and the studies that do that, they do not seem to find, um, a no, uh, a find, find a strong effect uh, of uh, differences in policy institutions on uh, political belonging. But of course, uh, as I said in the beginning, that is just one part of the political climate that is the institutions and policies that people meet. Another part is the rhetoric that they meet, the public debates that they are confronted with. So in her study, Simonson, uh, she uses uh, a mixed methods design. So it's based both on uh, focus groups with uh, second generation immigrants in Denmark, then a statistical analysis of European social survey data uh, combined with party manifesto data. And the statistical analysis covers then 18 European countries, while the focus group is based on uh, just Danish uh, uh, respondents. But of course, she argues that it's imp uh, interesting to just look at Denmark in uh, um, in this in the in, in this qualitative part of the analysis because Denmark is the most likely case uh, in terms of finding a negative effect of political rhetoric because it is the case where um, anti-immigrant rhetoric has been the most prevalent and where immigration issues have been highly politicized. In her uh, focus group study, uh, she finds that, uh, that um, Muslims appear particularly affected by um, anti-immigrant rhetoric she also finds that um, it tends to go not just with a lower political trust and um, a sense that politicians are not responsive to the needs of, um, of the group you feel you belong to, for, that is Muslims or immigrants. So that is kind of the, the effect that, that we would expect but it also seems to go along with a sense of exclusion from the demos, something that she finds uh, is somewhat surprising or unexpected. A feeling, as one of uh, her respondents say, that democracy is not for us, democracy is for the Danes. So it is a feeling that you're some kind of a second rank citizen who don't have the same rights as others and therefore feel excluded from participating on an equal footing in a democracy. So it's not just that people uh, reduce their sense of trust in politicians or reduce their sense that democracy works, the feeling of whether democracy works or, works or not, it's also a sense of they cannot take part in democracy in the same way as others can. So this is what she finds uh, in her focus groups. And then she tests uh, uh, these hypotheses um, in the statistical analysis combined with the other hypotheses 
um, that we talked about earlier, the so-called mediators of the negative effect of anti-immigrant rhetoric. She tests that in a statistical analysis uh, of the European Social Survey and the Party Manifesto data. And I'll briefly go through um, uh, the results uh, looking at the figures uh, from the paper. So uh, the first uh, figures in the statistical analysis, um, they show that there is a clear negative effect of, uh, of anti-immigrant rhetoric on both political trust uh, and satisfaction with democracy. So there is a clear general negative effect. But this is before looking at any of the these mediators. Um, and so if we turn to, to the next figures uh, in the paper, uh, she where she interacts the effect of uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric with the educational level uh, of respondents, uh, she finds uh, a significant uh, interaction term there, uh, both in terms of political trust and satisfaction with democracy. So uh, if you're looking at the slides on the left, you see uh, political the effect on political trust and uh, on the right, satisfaction with democracy. And what you see is that the lower educated are more affected by um, the anti-immigrant rhetoric than the higher educated. And it's a quite uh, clear uh, and strong effect. And what this seems to imply, or what Simonson argues that it implies, is that when you're higher educated, you have a more sophisticated political processing of uh, of the statements and the rhetoric that you hear. Uh, you're more able to say to yourself that they're not talking about me, that they're talking about uh, other groups, other immigrant groups, or other parts of uh, uh, of immigrant groups that you do not belong to. So you're more able to say to yourself uh, uh, that that you're not really the target of this rhetoric. At least that's the argument for why uh, the rhetoric seems to have a, a more negative effect on those with less education. And finally, she also interacts um, the effect of the anti-immigrant rhetoric with religious background and find that Muslims are much more affected uh, than those who are not Muslims. And this uh, was also hypothesized uh, that that would be the case because they are more often the ones who are targeted in public uh, debates uh, about immigrant integration. But you can also, so uh, so. this was um, me kind of going through the results of, uh, of her uh, analysis um, and how she measures, measures um, the context here is in an objective way. So she uses party manifesto data. So the amount of negative statements about immigrants that appear in party manifesto, party manifestos. But of course, you can have immigrants within the same context that have very different perceptions of that context. So immigrants in Denmark might not all perceive the context to be very uh, hostile towards immigrants 
there might uh, be strong differences between immigrants of in, uh, regarding whether or not they perceive the context to actually be very hostile or anti-immigrant. Uh, and um, th that, this is something that I've looked at using uh, data from 2018, which is uh, unpublished um, so far. Uh, and here I looked at um, the perception of uh, public hostility towards Muslims and refugees and how that correlates with a sense of political trust and political efficacy. And political efficacy here means whether or not you, f if you have internal political efficacy, if you have high internal political efficacy, it means that you feel that you are able to participate in politics. Uh, if you have a low external political efficacy, or let's say you have a high external political efficacy, you also feel that there are very low external barriers for you to participate in society, uh, in politics, and political trust, uh, you know. Uh, and uh, and what uh, I find uh, with that data is that. Um, it matters whether or not you perceive the political climate to be very hostile. So uh, those uh, with uh, Muslim descendants, but also non-Muslim descendants who uh, perceive um, the context, perceive politicians and the media to be very hostile towards Muslims and refugees, the, they are also the ones who have much lower trust and a lower sense of external political efficacy. But it does not seem to have uh, a strong effect on their eternal political efficacy. So they still feel they're capable of participating in politics, but that there are high barriers for their participation, uh, and they um, uh, and they feel less trust towards politicians. And it, this is particularly um, significant, or the effect is particularly strong among Muslims. So this is to say that it's not just a question about uh, context differences between countries. There are also differences between whether or not immigrants within countries perceive uh, the political climate as hostile or, or not. And that matters as well. So let's turn to, um, to talk about uh, the effect on acculturation. So up until now, we talked about uh, political belonging, using it uh, based on the text by Simonson on the syllabus. But there is also a text by Kunst et Al on the, uh, on the syllabus, which look at uh, acculturation, the acculturation expectations of majorities and the acculturation strategy of Muslim uh, minorities. Um, and what they want to uh, test in their study is whether or not uh, Islamophobia or religious prejudice affects whether or not majority members uh, affect the acculturation expectation of majority members and uh, the acculturation strategy or, uh, uh, or orientation of Muslim minority members. Uh, and to that end, they uh, they have two small surveys: one of majority members and one of Muslim minority minority members. So it's again a question about uh, the effect of uh, context, um, but again, it's uh, the effect of uh, the perceived Islamophobia in the context, the perceived religious 
religious prejudice in the context. Uh, and what they hypothesize is that uh, among majority members or majority natives, you could also call them, um, if, you, if they have a stronger religious identity, they're also uh, more likely to uh, have um, uh, be religious, uh, harbor religious prejudice, uh, and that will create stronger expectations of assimilationism among them. So expectations that immigrants must assimilate into uh, the national culture uh, and the national norms, uh, cultural norms, which in perhaps in their mind are shaped and formed by uh, re the Christian re religion. So uh, the basic uh, theoretical idea is that those who have um, a strong religious identity among the majority, that, that's a strong Christian identity, that they uh, harbor a stronger outgroup bias and show stronger in-group favoritism, and that they also feel that immigration is uh, to a large extent a threat towards their identity because it introduces more religious diversity. They also, uh, so that is their expectation when it comes uh, to uh, to uh, the majority. Um, in terms of Muslim minority, they expect that to the extent that they are confronted with religious religious prejudice or Islamophobia, that they that will um, drive them towards orientating. Orienta it will drive them towards a separation uh, acculturation strategy, meaning that they will start orienting themselves more towards their heritage culture, the culture of their home country, and less towards the culture of the host society that they arrived at, and that this effect will be particularly strong among those Muslims who are religious. They will... Um, feel more harmed or feel more unfairly treated uh, in when confronted with religious prejudice compared to Muslims who are less religious. And they talk about this vicious circle of uh, Islamophobia and acculturation, um, where you have, uh, uh, which um, manifest itself if you have a society where a large part of the majority harbor Islamophobic attitudes. So if large, large parts of society have Islamophobic attitudes, it creates a strong expectation of assimilation uh, in, uh, in society. Um, and this uh, strong uh, these expectations of assimilation will likely be interpreted by Muslim minorities as Islamophobia, as prejudice towards them. So they will experience a higher degree of Islamophobia. When they do that, they will start becoming more oriented towards their, their, their heritage culture and less oriented towards the national culture of the host society. So they will start 
uh, to a higher degree choosing as a separation as an acculturation strategy. And when they do that, that will further increase the Islamophobic attitudes in society and, and then the circle uh, is complete and starts again. So the idea is that it might create a vicious circle where that uh, creates a stronger clash between the expectations of society and the actual acculturation strategies of immigrants. Society will uh, over time create strong expectations of assimilation while immigrants over time will will choose the separation as an acculturation strategy to a higher degree, thereby clashing. Um, and in their first uh, survey of uh, majority members, the, they find this exact picture as they hypothesize that those who have uh, a religious identity, in, um, they uh, are more uh, anxious about uh, Islam and they harbor more stereotypical uh, notions about Islam. Uh, and when they, those who have more Islamophobic attitudes, they are also more, much more likely to expect assimilation. So they find uh, the pattern that they expected. In the survey of uh, the Muslim minority members, they also find the pattern uh, they hypothesized and expected. Uh, so in table three in in the paper you can uh, see their the results of their uh, regression analysis and if you look at the bottom of the table uh, you'll see in the step three uh, the third regression model where they include uh, an interaction term between religious identity and discrimination you'll see that that interaction term is uh, significant both when it comes to their orientation towards the national culture and their orientation towards, towards uh, the heritage culture, what they term ethnic orientation in the paper. And this means that when those who have a, a strong religious identity, they, are, they perceive uh, the context to, um, or they perceive Islamophobic discrimination to be something that is uh, to a large part, that, uh, a strong part of the context that is something that they meet, something they're confronted with, when they have that perception, they uh, will they are less likely to be oriented towards uh, the national culture and more likely to orient themselves towards uh, the heritage culture. So you see that there is a negative uh, coefficient um, when it comes to when national orientation is the dependent variable and there is a positive uh, uh, coefficient when the dependent variable is uh, the ethnic orientation uh, of, of the respondents. So they find they find the same picture that those who are religious uh, they are much more affected by um, uh, Islamophobic attitudes in the context than those who, uh, who are not very, uh, really, those Muslims who are not very religious. Uh, finally, um, I'll show you a, a, a few uh, results from my own research. Again, some unpublished results that I think uh, are interesting here in the context uh, of our discussion and uh, context of this syllabus. 
what you see here, if you're looking at the slides, um, uh, is a figure showing predicted values on four measures uh, of national belonging. And it's based on a survey of second generation immigrants in Denmark, Sweden and Norway conducted in 2018. It's same uh, data uh, as uh, um, the other figure I showed um, uh, uh, on second generation immigrants uh, in Denmark. Um, but we've tried to measure uh, national belonging uh, on four different measures. So two measures that uh, are what you could term kind of the personal feelings of national belonging, attachment and centrality. They ask about how attached you feel, uh, the respondents feel to Danish, Nor Norwegian or Swedish uh, society. Um, centrality is about how important it is for the respondents uh, to be Danish, Swedish or Norwegian. So these are what can be grouped as kind of these personal feelings of national belonging. But then you also have a social experience of national belonging. So the extent to which you feel that other perceive you as Danish, Norwegian or Swedish. And that is the measure of perceived acceptance. So how much feel people feel that others accept, accept them as part of the national community and a measure of perceived respect, the extent to which people Respondents feel that they receive the same uh, level of respect as most others uh, in society. So these have to more do with the social experience of belonging to uh, to the national community and being an equal member of the national community. And what we see here in Denmark, Sweden and Norway is actually that on measures of attachment and centrality, these personal feelings that um, that the second generation actually, uh, whether they are non-Muslim descendants or Muslim descendants, they have uh, quite high levels and that are comparable to uh, the levels among majority natives. So they have almost equally strong, at least in Denmark and Norway, equally strong personal feelings of national belonging. In Sweden, the picture is uh, a bit more muddy. I won't go into it here. It's a, it's a larger dis discussion. But at least uh, there's low attachment among Muslim descendants, but there is a lot uh, a higher degree of centrality. But what where we really see uh, a large difference between uh, native uh, and descendants, non-Muslim and Muslim, are uh, on perceived acceptance, so the social experience of national belonging, whether others accept you as part of the national community. And here you see that. Muslim descendants in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway feel much less accepted um, as part of the national community than, um, than non-Muslim descendants or majority natives. And they also feel much less uh, respected. And it's not that the effect, it's not that in Swedish society that um, Muslim second generation immigrants actually feel more accepted despite the large differences in the context that we talked about, the differences in political discourse, it does not translate to uh, Muslim descendants in Sweden feeling uh, much more accepted as part of society. So that is very interesting. And also uh, uh, something that was uh, unexpected of us to find. So it's the same pattern in all three countries. Um, then 
Um, we also looked at whether uh, how these uh, different measures of national belonging correlated with the perceived public hostility towards Muslims and refugees. And here we also find a quite interesting picture that the uh, the personal feelings of belonging, how attached you feel to society and how important it is for you to be uh, Danish um, or Swedish or Norwegian, are much less affected by the whether um, you perceive the, the public to be hostile towards Muslims and refugees. Uh, specifically in Denmark and Norway, we find some effect in Sweden, uh, but not in Denmark and Norway. But where the strong effect is of perceived public hostility is whether or not you feel that others accept you as part of society, as an equal, uh, a member of, on equal footing with other members of society. This is where you find uh, strong correlations um, and again, a bit stronger in Sweden than in Denmark and Norway, specifically when it comes to uh, perceived respect. So these, uh, this is just to, to show that um, even if you have a very uh, a context context like the Danish, uh, where you have a very, that is very uh, where there's a strong anti-immigrant rhetoric the second generation still develop a strong sense uh, of belonging, at least a strong personal sense of belonging to, to the nation. So, um, so that kind of questions uh, how, at least when it comes to in terms of national identity and belonging, how important um, the national context really is. And then Sweden here is a whole nother discussion. So the sweet, the sweet, the pattern when it comes to the Swedish second generation is a bit uh, is is very interesting, interesting to discuss here. But it it will take up too much time to do it now. Instead, I'll turn to a quick summary here of what I talked about. So we talked about the importance of political discourse and, and why it matters, why it affects belonging and participation in society. And the argument is that it, it sends a strong signals in terms of who uh, belong to the national community, who are the insiders, who are the outsiders, and, and what is valued, what kind of members is valued in the national community. So what, did, what, does, what is a good a citizen what does it mean to be a good citizen uh, and who do we value as members of our national community? Um, and, the, and, uh, and to the extent if you have very anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, it sends signals, uh, some signals about that it's very perhaps that you're not um, seen as an insider, as someone who is part of the national community, and you're not uh, valued as a member of uh, the national community, as an immigrant, particularly as a Muslim immigrant uh, or descendant. In, um, in the studies that uh, I've discussed here, uh, briefly, uh, what we tend to find, or what they tend to show, is there is a negative effect of anti-immigrant rhetoric on political trust and satisfaction with democracy, but mostly among those with less education and mostly among Muslims. Um, it is anti-immigrant rhetoric also uh, has the possibly has the effect that immigrants will choose to. Uh, separate culturally to a large extent in a context 
where they feel that, that they feel are hostile towards their cultural background, it will drive them towards prioritizing and orienting themselves more towards their uh, cultural heritage and less towards the the culture of the society that they immigrated to. It, uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric also possibly leads to uh, that the second generation so they, uh, feel less accepted as part of society, but it does not necessarily weaken their personal feelings of national belonging. So we did not find that uh, in Denmark, uh, second generation immigrants have uh, weaker feelings of belonging than in Sweden. Uh, and we also found that their personal feelings of belonging were not um, uh, did not correlate significantly um, with whether or not they perceived the uh, uh, politicians uh, and the media to be hostile towards Muslims and refugees. What it does affect is whether or not they feel accepted by others as a part of society. So this was a brief uh, summary of what I talked about uh, today. Uh, when we meet uh, tomorrow, Thursday, you'll start with a group exercise. You'll start out by using the first 45 minutes of the class uh, to go into your private group channels and discuss these three questions. First, you'll dis uh, yeah, you can read this, the question yourself here. Uh, the, um, the first question is uh, meant to be answered uh, quite uh, quickly, but also uh, and help you just um, recap and briefly discuss uh, what it is that um, Simonson find in her paper. The second question requires a bit more of you. You can't. You're not able to to find the answer in the syllabus for that question, so you have to think uh, think yourselves. So, do, uh, so whether or not you think that uh, lower levels of political trust and satisfaction with democracy uh, actually also or might translate into whether or not you also participate less uh, in society and specifically in politics. So would it mean that uh, immigrants also uh, vote less or are less likely to run for office or perhaps have the opposite effect? So try to think about it theoretically uh, and explain, explain your reasons for, uh, for the hypothesis that you, uh, that you built. And then uh, the last question uh, is again meant to briefly make you kind of recap uh, the findings of uh, the article by Kunst El. Um, so recap what actually they mean by the term the vicious cycle of prejudice and then discuss whether you think their findings support the acculturation theory of Barry uh, from lesson four. Um, so if you remember, uh, he argued that societies that uh, are accommodative of cultural diversity and have a more multiculturalist uh, orientation uh, and strategy or what he also uh, terms an integration strategy. Um, they are also the societies where immigrants are more likely to choose an integration strategy and be uh, and 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 societies where it's more likely that the integration strategy has a very um, has a positive effect in terms of um, psychological adjustment. 
But here, the question, it's about the, the first part of that hypothesis, how society affects the acculturation strategy that immigrants choose. So try to just briefly reorient yourself uh, in the text by Barry or in the talk from, from the last lesson. Uh, see if you can perhaps do it uh, just 15 minutes before uh, the class starts. Okay, thank you for today. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow um, for our class. Uh, and I hope you, the talk makes sense to you. Bye for now.